European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 43, Issue 48. Focus Issue, Clinical Trials, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Focus on Trials, Dementia, Lipids, Thrombosis and Heart Failure. This focus issue on clinical trials contains a fast-track clinical research article entitled Blood Pressure Lowering and Prevention of Dementia – An Individual Patient Data Meta-Analysis. In it, Professor Ruth Peters and colleagues from the University of New South Wales in Australia point out that several factors contribute to the risk of dementia, that observational studies indicate U-shaped associations of blood pressure, or BP, and incident dementia in older age, but randomized controlled trials of BP-lowering treatment showed mixed results on this outcome in hypertensive patients. A pooled individual participant data analysis of five seminal randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials was undertaken to better define the effects of BP-lowering treatment for the prevention of dementia. Multi-level logistic regression was used to evaluate the treatment effect on incident dementia. Effect modification was assessed for key population characteristics, including age, baseline systolic BP, sex, and presence of prior stroke. Mediation analysis was used to quantify the contribution of trial medication and changes in systolic and diastolic BP on risk of dementia. The total sample included 28,008 individuals recruited from 20 countries. After a median follow-up of 4.3 years, there were 861 cases of incident dementia. Multi-level logistic regression reported an adjusted odds ratio of 0.87, 95% confidence interval 0.75 to 0.99, in favour of antihypertensive treatment reducing risk of incident dementia with a mean BP lowering of 10 over 4 millimetres of mercury. Further multinomial regression, taking account of death as a competing risk, found similar results. There was no effect modification by age or sex. Mediation analysis confirmed that the greater fall in BP in the actively treated group was associated with a greater reduction in dementia risk. Peters et al. conclude that the first single-stage individual patient data meta-analysis from randomized double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trials provides evidence to support benefits of antihypertensive treatment in late mid and later life to lower the risk of dementia. Questions remained as to the potential for additional BP lowering in those with already well-controlled hypertension and of antihypertensive treatment commenced early in the life course to reduce the long-term risk of dementia. Sodium glucose co-transporter 2, or SGLT2 inhibitors, improve cardiovascular outcomes in diverse patient populations, but their mechanism of action requires further study. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Effect of Empaglyphlosin on Circulating Proteomics in Heart Failure, Mechanistic Insights into the EMPERA program. Faya Zanad and colleagues from the Université de Lorraine in Van Derve-Lenancy, France, explore the effect of empagliflozin on the circulating levels of intracellular proteins in patients with heart failure, or HF, using large-scale proteomics. 
over 1,250 circulating proteins were measured at baseline week 12 and week 52 in 1,134 patients from Emperor-reduced and Emperor-preserved using the Olink Explore 1536 platform. Statistical and bioinformatical analyses identified differentially expressed proteins, empagliflozin versus placebo, which were then linked to demonstrated biological actions in the heart and kidneys. At week 12, a total of 32 of the 1,283 proteins fulfilled the threshold for being differentially expressed. Among these, nine proteins demonstrated the largest treatment effect of empagliflozin. Insulin-like growth factor binding protein 1, transferrin receptor protein 1, carbonic anhydrase 2, erythropoietin, protein glutamine gamma glutamyl transferase 2, thymosin beta 10, U-type mitochondrial creatine kinase, insulin-like growth factor binding protein 4, and adipocyte fatty acid binding protein 4. The changes of the proteins from baseline to week 52 were generally concordant with the changes from baseline to week 12. The most common biological action of differentially expressed proteins appeared to be the promotion of autophagic flux in the heart, kidney and endothelium, a feature of six proteins. Other effects of differentially expressed proteins on the heart included the reduction of oxidative stress, inhibition of inflammation and fibrosis, and the enhancement of mitochondrial health and energy repair and regenerative capacity. The actions of differentially expressed proteins in the kidney involved promotion of autophagy integrity and regeneration, suppression of renal inflammation and fibrosis, and modulation of renal tubular sodium reabsorption. Zanad and colleagues conclude that changes in circulating protein levels in patients with HF are consistent with the findings of experimental studies that have shown that the effects of SGLT2 inhibitors are likely to be related to actions on the heart and kidney to promote autophagic flux, nutrient deprivation signaling, and transmembrane sodium transport. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Clemens Gutmann and Manuel Meyer from King's College London in the United Kingdom and Thomas Zelnicker from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. The authors note that among the few differentially regulated proteins, those proteins related to autophagy appeared to be overrepresented, in line with previous experimental studies implicating autophagy in the cardioprotective effects of SGLT2 inhibitors. However, further experimental evidence is needed to support this mechanism of protection by SGLT2 inhibitors. Moreover, alternative explanations are plausible i.e. effects on the iron homeostasis and erythropoiesis based on changes in proteins, such as transferrin receptor protein 1 and erythropoietin. Future proteomic studies would also benefit from investigating HF patients with reduced and preserved ejection fraction separately. Patients with HF with reduced ejection fraction and low systolic BP, or SBP, have high mortality in hospitalizations and poorly tolerated evidence-based medical treatment. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Effects of Omicamtiv Macabil in Heart Failure with Reduced Ejection Fraction According to Blood Pressure, the Galactic HF Trial. Marco Metra and colleagues from the University of Brescia in Italy 
indicate that omocamtiv macabil may be particularly helpful in such patients. The authors examined its efficacy and tolerability in patients with SBP less than or equal to 100 millimeters of mercury who formed part of the Galactic HF trial, which enrolled patients with baseline SBP greater than or equal to 85 millimeters of mercury, with a primary outcome of time to cardiovascular death or first HF event. In this analysis, patients were divided according to their baseline SBP, less than or equal to 100 versus greater than 100 millimeters of mercury. Among the 8,232 analyzed patients, 18% had baseline SBP less than or equal to 100 millimeters of mercury, and 82% had SBP greater than 100 millimeters of mercury. The primary outcome occurred in 48% and 36% of patients with SBP less than or equal to 100 and greater than 100 millimeters of mercury, respectively. Patients with lower SBP were at higher risk of adverse outcomes. Omicamtiv macabil, compared with placebo, appeared to be more effective in reducing the primary composite endpoint in patients with SBP less than or equal to 100 millimeters of mercury, hazard ratio or HR 0.81, compared with those with SBP greater than 100 millimeters of mercury, HR 0.95, p-value for interaction equaling 0.051. In both groups, omocamtiv macabil did not change SPP value over time and did not increase the risk of adverse events when compared with placebo. The authors conclude that in galactic HF, risk reduction of HF outcomes with omocamtiv macabil compared with placebo is large and significant in patients with low SBP. Omocamtiv macabil does not affect SBP and is well tolerated independently of SBP values. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Maria Generosa Crespo Lero and Eduardo Baj Caballero from the Universitario a Coruna in Spain and Teresa McDonough from King's College Hospital in London, United Kingdom. The authors conclude that therapeutic options for patients with low SBP, low left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF, and severe HF are currently very limited. The fact that omocamtiv macabal can be given orally sets it apart from other intravenous contractility-enhancing treatments. Careful selection of patients who may benefit from this drug will hopefully position its use soon. Post-infarction ventricular septal defect, or PIVSD, is a mechanical complication of acute myocardial infarction, or AMI, with a poor prognosis. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Post-Infarction Ventricular Septal Defect, Percutaneous or Surgical Management in the UK National Registry. Joel Giblet and colleagues from the Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital in the United Kingdom note that surgical repair is the mainstay of treatment, although percutaneous closure is increasingly undertaken. Patients treated with surgical or percutaneous repair of PIVSD 2010 to 2021, were identified at 16 UK centres. Case note review was undertaken. The primary outcome was long-term mortality. Patient groups were allocated based on initial management, percutaneous or surgical. 
A total of 362 patients received 416 procedures, 131 percutaneous, 231 surgical. 16% of percutaneous patients subsequently had surgery, while 7.8% of surgical patients subsequently had percutaneous treatment. Times from AMI to treatment were similar. Surgical patients were more likely to have cardiogenic shock, 62.8% versus 51.9%, P equaling 0.044. Percutaneous patients were substantially older and more likely to be discussed in a heart team setting. There was no difference in long-term mortality between patients, 61% versus 54%, P equaling 0.17. In-hospital mortality was lower in the surgical group, 55% versus 44%, P equaling 0.048, with no difference in mortality after hospital discharge. The authors conclude that surgical and percutaneous repair are viable options for the management of PIVSD. There is no difference in post-discharge long-term mortality between patients, although in-hospital mortality is lower for surgery. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Fernanda Alfonso, Guillermo Reyes and Rio Aguilar from the Hospital Universitario a la Princesa in Madrid, Spain. The authors note that it is excellent that new light has been shed on the management of this devastating complication. PIVSD represents an unmet clinical need as the most lethal cardiac surgical condition. Both surgical and percutaneous repair remain associated with a high mortality, but are viable and effective options in selected patients, providing durable benefits. Although these strategies appear to be complementary in nature, further research efforts are required to refine the decision-making process regarding timing of repair, strategy of choice, and use of mechanical cardiac support in individual patients presenting with PIVSD. In patients with ischemic heart disease, double antithrombotic treatments as compared with single antithrombotic treatment decreases ischemic risk but increases bleeding risk. In a clinical research article entitled Patient Selection for Long-Term Secondary Prevention with Ticagrelor Insights from Pegasus Timmy 54 Mark Bonica and colleagues from the University of Colorado School of Medicine in the USA note that the simultaneous assessment of baseline ischemic and bleeding risk may assist clinicians in selecting patients who are most likely to have a favourable risk-stroke-benefit profile with long-term ticagrelor. Pegasus TIMI-54 randomised 21,162 prior myocardial infarction, or MI, patients to 60 mg of ticagrelor or placebo. The primary efficacy endpoint was cardiovascular death, MI or stroke, and the primary safety outcome was TIMI major bleeding. Post hoc subgroups based on predictors of bleeding and ischemic risk were merged into a selection algorithm. Patients were divided into four groups, those with a bleeding predictor, 19%, and then those without a bleeding predictor and either a 0 to 1 ischemic risk factor, or IRF, 22%, 2 IRF, 35%, or greater than or equal to 3 IRF, 24%. In patients with high bleeding risk, ticagrelor increased bleeding, 
absolute risk difference, or ARD, plus 2.3%, and did not reduce the primary efficacy endpoint, ARD, plus 0.08. In patients at low bleeding risk, the ARDs in the primary efficacy endpoint with ticagrelor were minus 0.5%, minus 1.5%, and minus 2.6% in those with less than or equal to 1, 2, and 3 IRF, respectively. P equaling 0.076 for trend across groups. There were significant trends for greater absolute risk reductions for cardiovascular death, P trend 0.018, all cause mortality, P trend 0.027, and net outcomes, P trend 0.037, with ticagrelor across these risk groups. Bonica et al. conclude that in a post-hoc exploratory analysis of patients with prior MI, long-term ticagrelor therapy appears to be best suited to those with prior MI with multiple IRFs at low bleeding risk. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Kurt Huber from the Sigmund Freud University in Vienna, Austria. Huber notes that this elegant analysis performed in relatively young patients between 55 and 75 years of age specifies the risk variables for a clinically useful algorithm and confirms what has been recommended in recent ESC guidelines, namely a personalised approach for prolonged double antiplatelet therapy, or DAPT, in MI patients treated with percutaneous coronary intervention or conservatively. Unfortunately, this analysis does not reduce our uncertainties in choosing the correct duration and composition of DAPT in a permanently increasing cohort of elderly acute coronary syndrome patients. Patients often require combination therapies to achieve LDL cholesterol, or LDLC, targets for the primary prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. In a clinical research article entitled Effect of Inclizerin on Lipids in Primary Prevention, the Orion 11 trial. Kausik Ray and colleagues from the Imperial College London in the United Kingdom investigate the effect of inclizerin, a small interfering RNA-targeting hepatic proprotein convertase subtilism stroke kexin type 9 production in primary prevention patients with elevated LDLC despite statins. This pre-specified analysis of a placebo-controlled randomized Orion 11 trial included 203 individuals at risk of, but without prior, cardiovascular events, and LDLC greater than or equal to 2.6 millimoles per litre despite maximally tolerated statins. Inclizaran 284 mg or placebo was administered on days 1, 90, and thereafter every 6 months up to 540 days. Co-primary endpoints were percentage LDLC change from baseline to day 510, and time-adjusted change from baseline after day 90 and up to day 540. Key secondary endpoints included percentage and absolute changes in atherogenic lipoproteins. Safety was assessed over 540 days. The mean baseline LDLC was 3.6 millimoles per litre. At day 510, the placebo-corrected LDLC change with inclizerin was minus 43.7%, with a corresponding time-adjusted change of minus 41%, P being less than 0.0001.
The placebo-corrected absolute change in LDLC at day 510 within clizerin was minus 1.5 millimoles per litre, with a respected time-adjusted change of minus 1.3 millimoles per litre. In clizerin significantly lowered non-HDL cholesterol and apolipoprotein B, or ApoB, at day 510 versus placebo, P being less than 0.0001 for both, with a greater likelihood of attaining lipoprotein and ApoP goals, and was well tolerated except for mainly mild, treatment-emergent adverse events at the injection site. The authors conclude that inclizarin is generally well tolerated in primary prevention patients with elevated LDLC who derive significant reductions in atherogenic lipoprotein levels with twice-yearly maintenance dosing. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Baris Jentje and Francois Mack from the Geneva University Hospital, HUG, in Switzerland. The authors point out that several cost-effectiveness analyses have been undertaken for inclizarin in the secondary prevention setting, and treatment was only found to be cost-effective if the cost of treatment was lowered. Since cost-effectiveness depends on cardiovascular event rates in the population of interest, the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of inclizarin will be even higher for patients in the primary prevention setting compared with the secondary prevention setting. Such medical economic considerations are inevitably likely to impact medical decisions and the choice of therapies, especially for chronic conditions such as hyperlipidemia. Treatments with no clear cost-effectiveness benefit are becoming increasingly targeted by health services, and actions have already been undertaken to prevent their reimbursement, such as statin therapy for people aged 75 or older without cardiovascular disease in Switzerland. In this light, it will be interesting to see how the results of the ongoing Orion studies will be able to position inclizarin as a game-changer in the prevention of cardiovascular disease. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In an article entitled, Dalgeny was negative, not positive except for COVID-19. Alan Snyderman from the McGill University Health Centre in Montreal, Canada, comments on the recent contribution entitled, Pharmacogenetics-guided dalcetribib therapy after an acute coronary syndrome, the Dalgeny trial, by Jean-Claude Tadif from the Université de Montréal in Canada. Tadif et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.